Man, you can tell you are in a Baptist church when you change something that people have done over the course of their lives and they are so thrown that they just don't know what to do. Man, we now stand for the offering. You talk about a paradigm shift. We also believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and his salvation in his name, but we now stand for the offering. I'm so thankful for Caleb, who is going to be leading us in worship uh, and is going to be leading out in our band and, and running all of these things and taking care of that. And so you're going to want to thank him and thank him for his dedication to the Lord in serving us here at Ridgecrest. And remember to say standing. You know, it used to be that uh, when you would preach, you'd sit and they'd stand. But hey, uh, we are Baptist. And so we're just going to keep this this way uh, for now. Anyway, Galatians 6, 11 through 18 is where we will find uh, ourselves this morning. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you for you to take that home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know how to find the book of Galatians. And then as we make our way through this morning, the large numbers are chapters, the small numbers are verses. We're going to look at a couple of other, of other books this morning. If you want to just take note of those, you can look them up later. Don't feel compelled to turn to each one of those. Now, we've been in the book of Galatians about six months. We started it in, in May, and today's going to be our final Sunday in this. I hope that one of the things that you've seen, one of the things that just kind of this thread that Paul weaves over and over again is the importance of the exclusivity of the indispensable nature that it is Christ who has set us free. So it's nothing I've done, it's nothing I am, it's nothing I'm going to do, but Christ, his death on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection is what sets you and me free. It's how we enjoy freedom in him. It's how we enjoy the new life. And he has been pushing back over and again against this group of people that have come into town and said, listen, that's all well and good, but you need to do all of this other stuff as well if you want to step into relationship with God. And so we feel ourselves in these moments where we begin to believe that message is true, feeling like we are decidedly inadequate. I remember when I was uh, a little boy, I loved Superman, I loved all things Star Wars, and I loved the idea of telekinesis, right? I loved the idea of kind of being able to move stuff with my mind, and I remember watching TV one day, and it was this TV show that was made to look like real life, and it had a name like That's Amazing, or kind of like this Ripley's Believe It or Not, and this guy came on there, and I remember the host asking him, so what you got? What can you do? And he said, I can move pencils with my mind. Now listen, this may not seem like much to you, but I was down with whatever he had to say. And the host says, well, that's, that's really interesting. Let's see it. And so they put out a bunch of number two pencils, presumably because he's going to take a standardized test later. And so they put them out on the table in front of him, and he does this number. I mean, just eyes big, eyes small. Eyes big, eyes small. And all of a sudden, this pencil begins to just shake like this. And then it begins to roll forward and then back, forward and then back. And the host says, that is amazing. And they clapped and, and it went on. Well, what did I do? I ran to my bedroom. I dumped out a whole mess of number two pencils. 
And I went, for hours. My parents still speak of it as the golden hours. And I just begin to think, what's so special about him that isn't in me? Why can't I move pencils with my mind? And I begin to have this struggle in the sense that there must be something he has that I don't have. But in reality, I was trying to attain to a feat that was impossible for me to accomplish. And we see the same thing come to be true of us in our lives. We want it to be true of us that we can attain to our own salvation. We want it to be true of us that salvation in some sense rests upon me. My goodness, the things I do right and the things I don't do that are wrong. Because if I can control salvation, in some sense I can rest easy. In some sense I can breathe this collective sigh of relief. Paul David Tripp speaking to this says, let, it, let me state it plainly. Your hope is not to be found in your willingness and ability to endure, but in God's unshakable, enduring commitment never to turn from his work of grace. Your hope is that you have been welcomed into the communion with the one who will endure no matter what. Why is this so important to understand? Because your endurance will be spotty at best. There will be moments when you will forget who you are and live as a grace amnesiac. There will be times when you get discouraged and for a while quit doing the things God calls you to do. There will be moments big and small when you willingly rebel. You may, not be, you may be thinking, not me, but think with me. When you as a Christian say something nasty to another person, you don't do it because you're ignorant that it is wrong. But because at that point, you don't give a rip about what is right and what is wrong. You see, perfect endurance demands just that, perfection. And since none of us is there yet, we must look outside of ourselves for hope. Your hope of enduring is not to be found in your character or strength, but in your Lord's. Because He is faithful. The Judaizers rolled into Galatia to these five cities of this region, and they wanted to captivate the heart and minds of the Christians there to step into a works-based righteousness. And that's the way the enemy still delights in leading us. That's the way he still delights in leading us astray and away from our Lord in redemption and salvation in his name. Read Galatians chapter 6, 11 through 18 with me. Paul writes and says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus." The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
Let me pray for us once again. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. God, I pray that in this moment that those of us who find ourselves struggling with our sense of acceptance, wrestling with the forgiveness that we enjoy in the person of Jesus Christ, God, that we would surrender, that we would lay down that burden. It is a lie from the pit of hell that we are accepted based upon who we are and what we do. We are set free, we are accepted, we are redeemed, we're held fast by your wonderful grace. And so God, I want to pray for those this morning who came in with the heavy burden of sin and shackled to sin this morning. That they would see themselves set free. I want to pray for those who've come into this place not knowing you, doubting you, doubting your truthfulness, feeling far from you and wondering if it's possible for them to be forgiven, that this morning that they would be wonderfully forgiven as they recognize the purpose for which you have called them and that to salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that your spirit would move in this place, that you would stir up our affections for you, that you would block out distractions from us, that you would help us to center our hearts, our minds, our souls, our energy, and our thoughts on you this morning. God, that you might be glorified in our efforts, that you might be magnified with the praise of our hearts, the concentration of our minds. God, we want to be wholly yours. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds to make it so. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that I think is going to be most helpful for us this morning is to look at this passage and understand it in terms of those things that represent the Apostle Paul and those things that represent the Judaizers. And so there are a number of different threads he's pulling on as he's trying to sum up in some sense the totality of this letter. And so, but we're going to walk through it in terms of what does it say of the Apostle Paul and, and what does it say of the Judaizers. And, and in some sense in that, my hope is that we will see in us the temptation to be pulled away from what the Apostle Paul says and to be pulled into what the world and what the Judaizers and all those religious people around us that want us to find conformity and acceptance to God through the doing of right things. Now when we begin to look at this, recognize that as Paul's drawing this letter to a close, there is a changeover from Paul's scribe, from Paul's secretary, and he kind of takes the stylus, he takes the pen from them, and he begins to write out these last words himself. And, and, and principally, he begins to draw at the distinctions of those who are seeking to lead the Galatians astray from Paul, who's trying to call them back to faithfulness, back to an understanding that they aren't growing in their independence of God, but they're growing in the realization of their complete and utter dependence upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in that and all things. And so look at what he says, first of all. He says that these Judaizers are principally concerned with the opinions of others and they boast in their deeds. Look at 12 and 13. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. And then he says that they may boast in your flesh in verse 13. They look at the people that are there in these churches in Galatia, and, and essentially the thought occurs to them, oh, we could really do something here. If, if, if we can just kind of come in, and we can get these people to come to believe and to come to be identified with us and with our particular way of understanding things and the particular way we do things, 
we could really do something here. So in that, we recognize there's absolutely no care for the Galatians. There's no care, first of all, for their eternality, kind of where they're going, and there's no care for them. They only see them as pawns who exist for their own exaltation. Certainly, you've been around people who've made you to feel like this, people who don't actually value you, but somehow they sense some utility in you. You are a good tool for them. You're beneficial. The things you're able to do, your money, your talent, your time, your effort, your person, your presence, somehow these things count for them. Somehow these things matter to them. And that's the only thing they want in you. They don't want you in your problems. They don't want you in your difficulties. They don't want you in your struggles. They just want you, and they want the good things you bring into this relationship. You're useful to them. And that's essentially what the Judaizers say of the Galatians. Just dispel yourselves with all the struggles, with all the qualms you find yourself engaging in. You guys are useful to us. We need to boast in you. We need you to be circumcised. We need you to be our followers. But what does the Apostle Paul say? We recognize in the Apostle Paul that he is principally concerned for others and not in their opinions. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul asks the question. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And this is meant to be rhetorical in nature. They would say, well, clearly you're seeking it of God. But he goes on, he says, if I'm still trying to please man, then I'm not a servant of Jesus Christ. So Paul draws this line and says, listen, if our primary concern over the course of our lives is pleasing people, you're going to find yourself displeasing your Lord. And this is a pattern that we see true of us today. If we're primarily concerned with pleasing the people around us, keeping them satisfied, letting them look at us and saying, look at how great he is, look at how amazing he is, we will find ourselves moving along the slippery slope of appeasement and moving away from glorification and sanctification, moving away from obedience to our Lord. Paul says there is nothing in this that we want to boast in except in Christ and except in his cross. Look at what he says in verse 14. He had said, they long to boast in you. They long to boast in your flesh. They want to make a good showing. They want people to see you and count you amongst their number. They want people to see you as their groupies. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which he has crucified, uh, by, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul looks at it, and it's curious that he takes this expression, he takes the cross, and he says, I don't need to boast in anything except for the cross. And so Paul finds within the cross of Christ an idea, an ideology, a, a, a pattern of behavior, and in fact, even a word of the vocabulary of the Romans, something that is so incredibly repugnant that it wasn't to be uttered, it wasn't to be spoken of in polite company. He takes the idea of this cross, this crux, In fact, within Roman society, they wouldn't say, go crucify him, go hang him on the cross. They would say, hang him on the unlucky tree because it was completely uncouth. It was completely out of step with keeping with cultural uh, normative behavior to say the cross. Paul looks at it and says, listen, if we empty Christianity of the cross, there's really nothing left. 
If we empty Christianity of the cross, if we say that the cross is, is, is just this radical offense and perhaps there was a way of communicating salvation, of calling people to Jesus that isn't quite so pushy, it's not quite so edgy, then we find ourselves, in a very real sense, moving in line of the same pattern of behavior. But Paul says, far be it for me to boast in anything except for the cross. Now, Paul had a number of accolades behind his name. Paul had a number of accomplishments to his name. He had started churches. He had been a part of mass revivals. He had been a part of uh, leading certain cities in rebellion, in some sense. He had been imprisoned, he had been beaten, he had been beaten, and all these other things had happened to him, and he'd seen these amazing things accomplished at the hand of God. But when he says, when it comes time for me to boast, when it comes time for me to say what I've done, to speak my bona fide, this is what I boast in. I boast in the cross of Christ, and this is what Jesus has done through the cross of Christ. He said, this is the world, and the world is crucified to me. This is the world, and I am crucified to the world. The world held no allurement for Paul. Back in Galatians 2 and 20, this is what Paul had said. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Isn't that a difficult statement? Isn't that a difficult reality that we would walk in? It's in some sense this understanding that that I feel that sometimes what we want is absolutely to boast in the cross of Christ. I want to look at Christ, I want to look at what he's done, and I want to espouse, I want to say boldly, I want to say loudly, yes, I need his salvation. I get that I couldn't get there on my own, I get that I couldn't accomplish this on my own, I want the cross of Christ for me. Look at what he goes on to say. He takes all the things of the world and he crucifies it. He takes my desire for the world and he takes it from me. And this is what it is to live in faithfulness to him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, the apostle says that the world was crucified to him. He regarded the world as nailed up like a felon and hanged upon a cross to die. He means that its character was condemned. He looked out upon the world that thought so much of itself and said, I do not think much of you, poor world. You are like a doomed malefactor. He knew that the world had crucified its Savior, crucified its God, that it had gone to such lengths of sin that it hounded perfect innocence through the streets. It scoffed at and maligned infinite benevolence. It had rejected eternal truth and preferred a lie. The Son of God, who was love incarnate, it had put to death on the cross, and this led Paul. Since he condemned its character, utterly to despise its judgment, to say these words, I have ceased to care about glorying in men and making much of other people glory in my converts. The world is dead to me and I to it. And we feel in our bodies a sense at which we long for this to be true, but we doubt its truthfulness. And we feel the tug and the pull of our hearts and the disapproving looks of our parents and the disapproving looks of our children and the disapproving looks of our friends and our peers, and we wonder at the lengths to which we would go for this to be true to us. The world and all its trappings, the world and all of its benefits, The world in all of its glory, Paul says, it is dead to me and I do. 
This is the pull of God's grace in us. This is the centrality which Paul calls us to live out marked obedience to him. That we would be so aligned with the cross of Christ that when the, Lord, when the world comes that we would say to it, I cannot hear you, you are dead. When we well up with inside ourselves a sense of notoriety, a sense of becoming something significant, our desire for significance would only be buried in the cross and would not pull us away from obedience to the saint. This is what it is to find ourselves moving with the Apostle Paul and moving against the Galatians. But we feel it within our bodies. We hear it within our minds. We hear the siren song of culture and we recognize continually how we must grow in his grace if we are to persevere, if we are to be marked and referred to in this way. You see, occasionally we find ourselves moving aligned with the Judaizers the Judaizers, if we're going to describe them, Paul says simply, he says one of the reasons they do this, one of the reasons they need followers is so that they would not be persecuted. Look at what he said back at the latter half of verse 12. He says they need to make a good showing. They need you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They don't care anything about the Galatians. They don't care anything about their backstory. They don't care anything about their mother-in-law. They don't care anything about their family. They don't care anything about their financial pressures. They don't care about the, this intersection of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian and what it looks like to be a Roman citizen. They don't care. They only know they want their life to be simple and full of ease. And the Galatians represent the vehicle to make this happen. They want to abstain from persecution. They don't want it to typify their lives. They don't want it to have anything to do with them. Now, the Apostle Paul says of himself in verse 17, he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Why? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul recognized that in some sense to be a Christian is to willingly accept persecution. It's to be marked as living in opposition to the king of this world, to be marked as living in opposition to Satan, who the Bible tells us is the ruler of this age. So when, the more you align yourself with Jesus, the more powerful you make yourself for Jesus, and this only in submitting yourself to him, the more principally you are marked as an enemy of the power of this age. Now this, is, this is what the word says. But we feel within ourselves, we feel within our families, we look at the lives of our children, and we want them to be comfortable, we want them to be grand, we want them to be wonderful in this age, we want them to have good paying jobs so that they can let us, lead us into the life to which we would like to become accustomed in our retirement. You'll think about that later and it'll make sense to you. We want our kids to be wealthy so that we can be well cared for. That's what that was. But this requires a familiarity with the world. This demands a sacrifice for us. And it's not a sacrifice that the word gives us the ability to make. We are to be those who are ready and willing to be persecuted. Jesus in John 15, 18 through 20, is talking to the disciples and he says, if the world loves you, you're of the world. If the world hates you, it's a marker of the fact that you're not of the world. 
And he goes on and he says, as I've said to you before, a servant is not above their master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. So we come to this understanding that the more we look like Jesus, the more the world's going to hate us. This is what it looks like. In Acts 5 and verse 41, the disciples are taken and they're beaten before the council. And you know what their response is? Fellows, we need to temper what we say. We got to do this on the sly. We got to be more careful. They go out rejoicing, they said, for we were chosen worthy of being persecuted for the name. How far we've come. How far we've moved in technology as well. How much we have changed. Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul gives us a longer list, and I'm not going to read all of it to you, but maybe you'll want to go there in a second. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 30. Let's look at just a, just a little bit of this list of what Paul says. Starting in verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews, forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people. Danger, 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 danger. He says, when you look at my body, you can clearly see I'm one who's been marked for the suffering of Jesus. The word he uses here, this Greek word stigmata, is the same word applied to the brand that they would apply to a slave. And so if you were a slave and your owner came to you and he wanted to mark you so that you couldn't run away, so that people would recognize who owned you, he would come to you and he would brand you with an iron. Paul says, this is what my body looks like. On me bear the marks of Jesus. So the question becomes and the challenge becomes, what links do we go to to abstain from the marks of Jesus in our life? Or in what ways are we willing to submit ourselves to bear his reproach? To bear his To bear his marks is to bear the identity of being his people. We need to live lives that are marked by a ready acceptance of persecution, not a radical avoidance of it. Recognize, lastly, that the Judaizers are satisfied with a thin veneer of religious faithfulness. Verse 13, it says, For even those who are circumcised do not keep the law. They really just want you to be circumcised. They themselves don't keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul, speaking of faithfulness in verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but solely a new creation. So we look at these Judaizers. And essentially, if we're going to bring this up to speed for us, these would be the kind of people who are faithfully in attendance at church. These would be the kind of people who give financially to a church. Like these may be even the kind of people who go out and share the gospel door to door. But the motivation behind everything they do is that you would look at them. That Janie would see them walking down the street. That David would see them walking down the street. That Angie would see them walking down the street. That we would tell people, do you know them? Oh, they're amazing. They give up their time. They give up their money. I frequently see their car parked in the parking lot at Ridgecrest, and and I know they don't work for Grubhub, so that's not what's going on. They are amazing. They have steak 
the trajectory of their lives on being well spoken of by others, of being well liked, of being recognized as being a person of God, but they don't really care anything for the person, for God themselves. See, it's enough for them. It's enough for them that people recognize them as such. They feel no reason to give themselves to a full submission to Jesus. Paul looks out, or at least I can kind of see him there, and he's imagining in his mind the people hearing this letter. And he knows in the people that are hearing this letter, there are those who have already given themselves to taking circumcision. And they're basing God's satisfaction with them on the fact that they've done this. And at the same time, there are those in this gathering hearing this letter read for the first time, and they are so incredibly self-assured because they've not been foolish enough to take circumcision. And they look up at God and they say, you are satisfied in me because I've not been foolish like them. Paul says to both groups, you miss it thinking it's something you did. You miss it thinking it's something you abstained from. This is what matters, a new creation. See, Paul looked at his former manner of existence in the book of Philippians, and he described all of it as waste, all of it as a liability, all of it as a radical encumbrance to coming to know God. In writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is how Paul describes this new creation. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, to be found in the Messiah, to be found in the one who suffered for your sins. If you are in him, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There'll be moments over the course of your life, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are here in this place and you find yourself struggling with sin and you are looking at your failures and the question rolling over in your mind is, Am I even a Christian? And you base your response to that question on the pattern of faithfulness over the course of your life. You are answering that question incorrectly. What determines whether or not you are a Christian is what Jesus did and whether or not you believe it to be true. Whether or not you believe what Jesus did and whether or not you believe it to be true for you. You see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And what we believe is that my life is full of sinful liability. And what is true of you is that your life is full of sinful liability. You were, Paul writes in Ephesians, dead in your sins and your trespasses. And you liked it there. You weren't dead in protesting. You weren't dead in saying, this is, this is a miserable place. You were dead and you liked it. And while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, even in that, Jesus died for you. And he bid you to come and receive salvation in his name. You see, he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for your sin, for your waywardness, for your wickedness, for your restlessness, for your disbelief. And he didn't solely take upon the sins that you committed prior before you came to know him. 
See, the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took upon the sins that I committed this week. He took upon himself the sins that I committed this morning, the sins that I'll commit this afternoon, and the sins I'll commit over the rest of my life. And his death is so so incredibly astonishing and powerful that his redeeming death is so incredibly powerful that it carries me all the way into eternity. And that's what Paul calls on us to receive. And that's what Paul calls on us to hear. The fact that we have been made a new creation. The Judaizers came in and they wanted to unsettle them. To have them here, to have them come to believe that there was something wrong in them. And if they added to their salvation, they could come into communion with God. What the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that God steps into the messiness of our lives and he pulls us to himself in spite of our best objections because of the goodness of Jesus. Let's think Paul's final verse and let that be our conclusion. Paul writes in some sense a prayer for them. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we need your grace. We need the staying power of Jesus Christ mightily at work in our lives and our hearts. We want to be held by you in all things. We want to be redeemed by you. God, I pray that you would drive out the errant beliefs that would say that there's something more we need to do if we are to be saved by Jesus. That there's something less that we are to be if we are to be saved by Jesus. You accomplish salvation for us in the sacrificial death of Jesus. And in his death, And through the power of his resurrection, you call us to yourself. That we might know him, and that we might be forgiven. God, we love you. We surrender this time to you, and ask that you continue to stir in our hearts and draw us closer to you and make us more like you. In Christ's name, amen.